0: Well, Welcome everybody to this morning. Thank you so much um, for coming in. Really appreciate your attending this morning and it's great to have a face-to-face uh, meeting even though um, we're still riding through the waves of COVID. So really appreciate you coming in. Coming in. I'd like to commence with acknowledgement of country in Ngunnawal language. Bunimanyan, <speaking in Spanish> Nalawari. This is Ngunnawal an Country. Today we are gathering on Ngunnawal Country. We always pay respect to Elders, female and male. And we've got a beautiful image of um, Coolum and Rich Nature Reserve, which is part of Canberra Nature Park there. A couple of COVID-19 um, um, house rules, which you probably know off by heart. Please remember to be COVID-safe while you're here. Keep wearing your mask while you're inside. In this venue, of course, if you need to eat or drink, you don't need to be wearing a mask. Please practice social distancing where you can, and, and of course, hand washing and hand sanitizer is available if you need it. If you're feeling unwell, become feeling unwell, please please leave and, and get tested. Um, you'll find bathrooms out there, uh, uh, just out the side of the hall and around the corridor and downstairs. Um... If there is an emergency, our team here will guide you to the, to the meeting point, which is literally down the stairs and to the right, to the back there. Um, please feel free to take calls or stretch your legs or answer emails, etc. what you need to do in the foyer. We appreciate your time. It's really oversubscribed at the moment. So please feel free to step outside as you need. Um, please note that uh, the audio from this forum will be recorded um, and the audio will be used as a podcast recording. And we'll be taking photos throughout the forum to share with our broader sector community using our usual communication channels. So if you don't want your photo taken, please let the team know that you'd you, you prefer not to have your um, photo taken. The The background for this is risk assessment and risk management. And we know that having the suite of governance um, documents that you need to enable your staff to do the best job they can and to... Uh, give you a sense of what the risks are and assess the risks is so important. Those policies and procedures and the communication with staff is really important. And as part of the National Quality Framework, risk assessment um, and managing risk is um, part of the the DNA of it, whether it's it's about um, equipment or play or interactions with children. But we need a balanced approach, of course, in relation to um, risks that are part of children's play and the normal development of children. I'm pleased that, and really grateful that we've got a range of amazing experts um, today um, that are going to take us through risk um, assessment and management, uh, have a look at play and playground equipment, have a look at anaphylaxis and allergies and man- managing medic- those medical conditions in children, and problematic, harmful, or challenging sexualised behaviours in children. And today's forum marks the halfway point of Seeker's targeted risk assessment and management campaign. Um, and our campaign aims to address trending risks in our sector and revisit risk management um, methodology together. And I can say that the, the short amount of time I've spent with the colleagues who are speaking today has been incredibly enlightening and informative and, and very valuable. And today we'll hear from, um, from Rhonda Pilgrim, who's the Director of Risk Management at the ACT Insurance Authority, um, Dr Helen Little, Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood, an Associate Course Director at Macquarie University. Sandra Vale, who's the National um, Allergy Strategy Manager. Cassandra Tinning, Social Worker and Allied Health Manager, um, Women, Youth and Children Community Health Programs, which includes the Child at Risk Health Unit, which we know as CARU. Uh, Maria Said will be, um, AM will be joining us for the panel and Maria is the Australian Chief Executive um, of the National Allergy Strategy and she's the co-chair. Sorry, and she's the co-chair of that too. Um, I, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, uh, Rhonda Pilgrim, who's the director of risk management at the ACT Insurance Authority. Rhonda has been managing risk in various sectors for over 25 years. Firstly, as a medical research scientist, before moving into the quality and risk field, specialising in uh, and in developing and certifying systems to manage organisational quality, safety and environmental risks and Rhonda has worked in community services, manufacturing, mining, energy, federal and ACT government. And During a time in the community service sector, Rhonda has provided risk and quality advice to early childhood education and care providers. Rhonda's passionate about delivering simple, pragmatic and appropriate risk solutions to organisations. As a director... Within the ACT Insurance Authority, Rhonda is cur- currently provides training and tools that helps each ACT Government Directorate to assess, manage and report on risk. Please give Rhonda a warm welcome. Thank you,
1: Thanks very much, Sean. So, today... I'm going to start off with some broad information about risk management before... Sorry, I'll just take this off so you can hear me. (laughs) I'm going to start with some broad information about risk management before our other specialists uh, provide you with some uh, much more specific information. So I'm just going to start with some really basic concepts about risk management. I will be working with you tomorrow in our workshop as well, so... um, So we'll take a lot of today's concepts into that workshop. So there are a number of definitions that we can have for risk. Now, the risk standard, ISO 31000, says it's the effect of uncertainty on objectives. And we're going to look at that a little bit more later. So what is our objective and what can stop us from meeting that objective? That's essentially what risk is. It's something that stops you from doing what you are trying to achieve. I've heard other people say it's uncertainty that matters. Not all risks matter. The risk of getting a paper cut is probably something we are not going to spend a huge amount of time managing. The risk of someone um, losing a child out of a childcare centre is absolutely a risk we want to manage. So it's uncertainty that matters. Another definition is it's the bad thing that happens. So when we're trying to define a risk, we need to be really clear of what we're actually defining. And the the risk that we are defining is the bad thing that's going to eventuate. So we'll come back to that in tomorrow's workshop where we're going to do a really structured approach to working out what a risk actually is. But I heard a really good definition at a risk conference I went to earlier this year. And I think as service providers, as the people in charge of your facilities, this one to me really resonates from a risk management perspective. Anyone who makes decisions manages risk. Risk management is just a tool for making good decisions. So if you start your processes by looking at what am I trying to do? What can go wrong? How do I manage it so that I can still achieve my objective? That's what risk management is all about. So here's a question. Why would we take a risk? Anybody give me an idea? Why do you think we take a risk? We take a risk because there's a reward at the other end. So, risks are the flip side of opportunity. So, if you hear someone using the term cutting corners, they're generally cutting corners to save time, to save money, or to get to what they want to do uh, more quickly. That's why we will take a risk. But we need to balance that risk with what we're trying to do. I keep coming back to that whole thing, objectives, A risk is something that stops us achieving those. So would we take a risk in the pouring rain? You don't want to get wet, so you run across the road. Would you, would you run across the road to get to work on time? Possibly you would. But let's change the context a little bit. With your children in tow, are you going to take that risk? Depends how old the kids are. Are you going to do it at peak hour if you have to cross Hindmarsh Drive? Are you going to run across the road at peak hour? Probably not. At 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe you might if you can see that there are no cars there. It's all about our context. Would we take that risk when we're 50 metres from a pedestrian crossing and we know that there's a police car up the road and he could take us for jaywalking because we're doing the wrong thing? Or if you are a carer at a facility, and you know that you've got kids watching through the gate and you choose to run across the road. You're not setting a good example. Would you take the risk at that point? So it's all about context. But we also need to look about at what our objectives are. Why are we wanting to get across the road? If we want to cross the road safely, we probably wouldn't run. But if we want to cross the road quickly, if that is our objective... We might. If we want to cross the road compliantly, we would walk across at the pedestrian crossing. And if we want to be setting a good example for our children, we are definitely not going to be crossing the road in the wrong spot. So so that risk context and objectives, it really colours everything that we do. It colours every decision we make. So we all make risk decisions every day. But when you are making risk decisions on behalf of other people, that's when you really need to think about your context and think about your objectives. So, uh, in, in your education context, the, uh, the cost of risk... Well, the main cost that you are looking at is safety, but you also have financial costs associated with taking risks. So a child who gets injured in the playground could be a public liability claim for you. An educator being injured could be a workers' compensation claim. It could mean you've got to bring on casuals. It could mean you're unable to meet your um, supervision ratios. So these are all costs to a risk eventuating. If we have a regulatory non-compliance from our lovely friends here who regulate you, what could that be? We've got the cost to rectify the issue. You may be un- unable to operate until you fix the problem, and that has a big cost. And then you've got possible reputational damage if you if you've got um, uh, parents who hear that you've had a regulatory non-compliance. Will they take the children out of the centre? Will they contact the Canberra Times? All of those are possible um, consequences to, to a, a risk. What about a fridge breaking down? We've got the cost of the fridge repair. We can't provide food services. We've got to tell the parents, OK, well, for the next week till we can get the fridge repairer, can you all pre- please bring a packed lunch? Uh, we've got potential food poisoning. So all of those are consequences to uh, a risk cost. OK, has anyone heard the term... Um, risk appetite, a risk tolerance. So your organisation's risk appetite is about what you will accept as a risk. As I said before, you might say, oh, paper cut. Yeah, well, you know, we're not going to stop using paper because someone might get a paper cut. We have a tolerance for that level of safety. But will we, will we uh, accept a high risk to get a high benefit? Maybe, maybe not. Now, every organisation has a different leadership team, has a different organisational structure, and your risk tolerance really needs to be set at that very high level. We don't expect the educator who's um, there with the child to make the decision about risk tolerance. That sits up at your more executive level, okay? Would you tolerate a child being injured to reduce playground maintenance costs? I know that there's a standard that says you need to put uh, soft fall and check that soft fall below all equipment. Well, we haven't got much money this month because uh, there are a lot of kids not here due to COVID. We can't afford to to do that check on on the, the soft fall. We haven't got the money to um, to replace it if they tell us that it's no good. Is that a risk that we're going to tolerate? I can't tell you that. Hopefully, um, our panellists over here are, are going to be able to give you some better advice on, on those playground sorts of things and what risks we can and cannot tolerate and how to make those decisions. But it it's not up to the, um, the casual educator on out-of-school hours care to decide, oh, no... The the playground doesn't need um, uh, checking this month. That's... Just don't do that. That's not their job. That's your job. Is it acceptable to work with an incorrect educator-to-staff ratio because you've got uh, lots of people off with COVID? Now, that is a risk that all of you are managing daily, I am sure. And it is a risk that you are um, deciding whether you can tolerate... So that's, what, that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. So with the equipment example, can we risk uh, trying to prove that an equipment purchase wasn't reasonably practicable under, um, under the work cover requirements? So our work health and safety regulations say that we need to reduce risks to as low as reasonably practicable. So our risk tolerance is about saying, well, what's reasonably practicable to me? Is it reasonably practicable that I have to spend $10,000 to fix this equipment? I might decide to decommission that and we'll get something simpler in, uh, instead if we, if we can't repair it. So those are all risk decisions, risk-based decisions that you need to make. So what we will go through tomorrow is a bit of... Um, Well, we've got several scenarios, but we'll do some strategic risk work first to help you to create a framework. Hopefully, you've already got some of this sort of stuff in place, but we're going to go back to basics a little bit and take you through some of those risk decisions. So, this picture here is the ISO 31000 Risk Management Standard Risk Framework. And it's a fairly complicated diagram... But the process is reasonably simple. So I talked at the start about our scope, our, our, um, our context, our criteria. Are really, uh, that's our, um, our way of deciding what our risk tolerance is. If we say that a risk is medium, what are we going to do about it? Our criteria tell us when it's high, we need to do something and we need to do something now, or high... Yeah, we can accept it, but we need to monitor it. That's what our criteria are all about. So we need to establish that before we go into the um, uh, our risk assessment piece. Now, I, um, I have included in your um, workbooks for tomorrow an example of the way that's done in the ACT government. We have a, a set of criteria there for determining what risk is. Now, that's, that's very broadly ACT government. It's not for your organisations. You need to work out exactly what your criteria are for you. But uh, you can certainly use what, what's in your work packs tomorrow to have a bit of a, um, an idea as to how to develop that. So the risk assessment piece has three basic steps. Identify the risk. What are they? Then you analyse the risks. What controls do we already have in place um, and how do they relate to the risk? And then we do an evaluation. We look at our consequence. We look at the likelihood of that consequence occurring and we decide whether our, um, whether we're going to accept that, whether we need to do more. So that's the, that risk assessment process. We identify the risk, we analyse and we evaluate. And then we treat the risk. So if our risk is not low enough we need to do more. So that's a decision again based on your risk tolerance and your criteria. Do I need to do more? Is what I've done enough? So tomorrow we'll be looking at um, several scenarios and those scenarios already demonstrate that there are some controls in place and we're going to have a discussion about how um, how we can look at that based on the information we've heard from our other presenters this morning. How can we put new controls in place, new treatments is the official term from uh, ISO 31000. So if you hear me use control and treatment, a control is something that you already have in place that you are using routinely, like maybe your supervision ratios, your procedures, the training that you do. A treatment is where you say, okay, I've, I've assessed my risk, I know what my controls are, I know what I'm doing now, that's not enough, I need to further treat my risk. So when I talk control and treatment, control is existing, treatment is a new thing that I need to do to reduce my risk further. And once that treatment is in place, it will then become a control as well. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so that's, that's our basic process as we go down. Recording and reporting, for the people in this room, that is incredibly important to you because you might not be implementing those uh, controls or the treatments directly. You're expecting your educators to do that. So, for you, it is really important to know that those controls have been implemented. If you say that this is the, the ratio that I'm expecting you to implement... You shouldn't have to be out there every day counting how many kids to uh, to educators. You should be able to know that based on reports that come back to you. What sort of reports are those? That's up to you to determine. How frequently you need those? Is it a do you want a daily list of all the children and all of the staff in the centre? Do you need that weekly? Is that something you can see on your system? How do you know that those um, controls are in place. So that is a critical thing for you in your uh, leadership and control roles. How do you know that those controls have been implemented? Because everything in that risk assessment piece, that's prospective. That's, this is what we want to do. This is how we expect to control the risk. But on a day-to-day basis and when the regulators come they're going to want to see how do you prove your controls are in place do you have training records that your staff have attended training that is a way of uh, recording and reporting that you've got your controls in place have you done fire evacuation drills what is the record of those so the fire drill is a control for the risk of getting a fire of having a fire how do you prove that that control is effective. So think about that as we go through because that is the most important thing from my perspective for this group, for you to have the assurance that the controls that your teams have implemented are in place and are effective, okay? So we've got two pieces on the sides of the diagram... Communication and consultation is really, really critically important and that occurs through all of the stages. It's not enough for you in a senior role to say, OK, I've done the risk assessment, these are the controls, everybody knows that, great, I'm going to review it in six months' time and make sure it's all good again. We need to be consulting with our educators the whole way through because they're the ones who are implementing things. They're the ones who know day-to-day the risks. They're the ones who know whether things are eventuating, whether the controls that are in place are effective. You've given them training. Did it stick? Are they following it? Was the training no good? Or they're entrenched in their ways and and they didn't believe the training? That consultation is critically important and it goes two ways. It's not just top-down telling people We've identified a new risk. Here's the control. Everybody implement it. We need to be really sure that our educators have taken that message on board and are implementing the controls and are telling you whether that is sufficient. So think about what your communication methods are, up and down, because that's really important in risk, because the people who identify the risk are not necessarily the people who are controlling it. So be really clear on that one. Now the monitoring and review, that goes in with the recording and reporting. So I'll talk a bit more about monitoring uh, a little later on. But monitoring goes along, as I said, with the recording. How do we monitor um, our risks? How do we know whether they're eventuating? So we will do a, uh, a task as part of our workshop tomorrow to actually look at what monitoring looks like, what reporting looks like and what you have in place, what you'd like to have in place. Okay, so I've talked broadly about the risk process. Now, the list here, um, these are categories for the ACT government um, that identify different types of risks that you may be uh, faced with. Now, day-to-day in a childcare setting the main risk you are focused on is safety of the children. But in a leadership role, it doesn't matter how safe the children are, if you do not maintain your assets, um, you you can have significant regulatory issues, you can have flow-on effects to safety issues, you can have significant costs. If you do not comply with the requirements uh, of your... um, uh, or comply with your legislative requirements, you can be shut down. Um, people, are, I've already talked about, and, that, and, and the people category includes your educators, your students, your um, uh, your parents coming into the centre. So people safety is quite... Or, you know, people is a, a broad topic. It also includes, um, from an HR perspective... Uh, losing staff, bringing staff on, staff training. So the people side uh, is is quite a broad risk area. Environmental risks, financial risks, some of these are going to be more applicable to you than others. Financial risk is, is definitely one. If you've got um, children not attending centres and you're not financially viable, uh, that's Obviously, a big risk for you that, that we can look into a little bit more tomorrow. So, so from a strategic perspective, tomorrow's first session is going to be covering some of these, and I'm going to ask you not to focus specifically on, on safety, but to look at some of those broader risks. So, uh, just to take a step back, we, we are giving out the slides to people, aren't we? we are. Yes, yeah, so I can see lots of you scribbling madly. Um, so you will have a set of the slides afterwards as well. Um, your, your general business activities. So, so that's obviously what you do day to day in your centres. What are the, the risks associated with just delivering your service? So we're going to do an exercise tomorrow about context and how that affects some of these, um, uh, these strategic risks Climate change is probably not something that you're going to look at tomorrow. It's only just been added to the ACT um, uh, public service um, risk categories, but I'll put it in there just for completeness. So this document is huge and scary, and I don't expect you to read any of it now, but this is essentially the criteria that I talked about uh, previously. So across the top, Going from insignificant to catastrophic are the consequences of some of the key risks. And those key risks, I know you can't read it up there, are financial, people, compliance and regulation, reputation and image, and service delivery. So the ACT government has defined what it sees as really bad to insignificant for all of its main categories. Now, that may apply for you, so you will have a copy of this tomorrow. As I said, you'll be getting the slides, so you can have a look at that and say, all right, well, how does that work for my centre? You'll focus much more on the people side of things, I'm sure, and there's some quite good definitions in there. But what this document also has is some some other information around priority for action. Now, I don't know how to press... Can I press the... I don't know. (laughs) The the pointy button. I'm left-handed and I stuff these things up regularly, so please forgive me. I'll just just point. So um, down in this left corner, priority for action. So if we decide that something is an extreme risk, how fast do we need to fix it? If we decide it's a low risk, yeah, we don't actually need to do a lot. So that's that's our... um, that's really important because if all you do is get to the colored bits in the in the middle and you say okay well I've got a high risk what does that mean just saying something is a high risk in a risk assessment doesn't say what the next step is so that piece down the bottom the priority for action is important on the right hand side there's also a section that says risk control effectiveness and that is telling you, um, that's giving you some definitions around what to look for as far as the adequacy of your control. So we'll go through that in a bit more detail tomorrow. So this broadly is a document that you need to have. It's called your risk assessment table, but basically it's giving you those um, guidelines for when you're doing a risk assessment of what does really bad look like, what do I do about it if I find really bad? What can I, you know, what do I as a uh, as a leader in a centre need to know as far as um, my control effectiveness? How can I decide whether my controls are actually working? So that's that's what this document gives you, and it is something that you will need to be able to do um, really good risk assessments for your uh, for your facilities. Okay, so the next. is around creating a risk management plan. How am I going for time? All right. i only got a couple more slides. So um, this basic process I've got across here, we will go through that um, uh, tomorrow in the workshop. So as I said previously, we identify the risk. What can happen? How can it happen? What's the result? So we'll go through that tomorrow. What controls do I already have in place? What are they and who implements them? That'll be the second part of creating my risk plan. The next one is assessing my risk level. What's the, the um, consequence, the likelihood, and the control effectiveness, all of those together. Give me a risk score. Is that acceptable based on my risk tolerance for my organisation? If not, what else am I going to do about it and how do I monitor and review? So, so some people call... You can put all of that information into a risk register. So getting to the point of um, here are my risks and here's how I control them, that's your risk register. Tacking on the end of it, these are the treatments I'm putting in. I know who's responsible. I know when they're going to have it done by. I know when I'm going to come back and review. I know who's monitoring all of the information. That turns your risk register into a risk management plan. So, the template that I use uh, across ACT government for um, as Actia, that basically has all of those things in it. It looks big and ugly and, and messy and I am trying to improve it. <laughs> but the basic concept there is you all need to manage risks in your facilities. If you have a risk register that has all of those elements in it, that risk register is your risk management plan and that's how you monitor your risks. So this is the, the first part of the risk register and we will develop something like that as a group uh, tomorrow. So what's our risk? What's the source? What's the impact? Who owns it? What controls do we have in place? And what's our risk rating? So that's, that's the first part. As I said, that's your risk register. Then when we add on... What am I going to do about it when I've got something that's high? That's the second part. So ignore the information in there. I don't expect to, you to read that. That's a, I did a risk assessment a little while ago about home garaging fleet electric vehicles. Very interesting, very different to this concept, uh, context. But <laughs> but the principles of risk can be applied across any organisation, across any field, and that's that's the basics there. OK, so... So when we're controlling risks, um, who's heard of the hierarchy of controls from a safety perspective? Anybody familiar with this diagram? I'm sure some of you are. You're all very quiet. The first thing we want to do is eliminate the risk, then substitute it out. If we can't do that, we put engineering controls in place. I will go through this in a little bit more detail tomorrow as well. Um, And our last line of defence is putting our masks on, our PPE. So the idea is we control a risk at a higher level uh, rather than a lower one. And the more effective our control is, the less monitoring of it we need to do. So that concept is, as I said, a safety one. It comes from the safety legislation, but it can absolutely be applied across any risk. So, there's another way we can think about controls, and that's controls at different stages. Ideally, we would prefer to prevent an incident from happening. Prevention manages the cause of the incident. If we only put in our um, our controls at the recovery and response phase, the incident has already happened. And Okay, we've had a child injured and we've done this and we've done this and we've done this and we've done this. this, But none of it prevents the injury that has occurred. So we really want to focus our efforts at that prevention stage. So if we think about a fire in a kitchen, a fire in a kitchen, how would we prevent that? Well, we could say... Okay, right, this facility does not provide any hot food. Um, We expect all children to bring in their own lunch. That's one way to completely eliminate the hazard. But if our objective is to provide children with a hot meal every day, then we haven't met the objective. We could probably meet that objective by buying McDonald's for all the kids. But if our objective is to provide a hot... Um, healthy meal we haven 't met the objective if our objective is to keep the um, keep the center afloat financially probably buying mcdonald 's lunch every day is also not going to meet that objective so we were substituting out the risk by by getting uh, getting things done um, at mcdonald 's that hasn 't met the objective so we can 't use that control. From an engineering perspective, right, we can have a locked door to the kitchen. The the children can't get in there. We have one trained educator who is um, uh, preparing meals and is is the cook, and so there you have reduced the risk because you've got a trained individual using the kitchen. And that's a good engineering control. Our administrative controls include things like having regular... um, Uh, regular fire drills. But the fact that you have to do those fire drills regularly means that the control itself is not effective. The children forget uh, what they're doing. Um, You know, it's it's a big process to get everybody out of the centre and everybody back in again. So it's not as effective a control as the higher level ones of keeping the kids out. You know, a child in the kitchen much bigger risk of a fire, but uh, so so that engineering control is a better control than just teaching the kids how to leave the centre after the fire has happened. So from that, you know, cause and effect uh, or prevention side of things, we can see the engineering, the substitution, the elimination, they're preventing us having a fire. The administrative control in place is managing the effect. Um, We've got this little green circle over here, detection. So, if we think about a a smoke alarm, and anyone who saw the news on the weekend with the children, the child who unfortunately didn't escape a house fire in Sydney, the message out of that was working smoke alarms that is a detective control because that is detecting whether a fire occurs. So that's sort of in between our prevention and our our response side of things. So, So when we're thinking about the controls we have in place, think about the controls that eliminate the hazard, that substitute something that's less dangerous for it. So we're trying for every risk that we do to eliminate The cause rather than addressing um, the effect. Okay, so just to uh, finish up, I have been talking a little bit about tomorrow's workshop. So, as I said, the first part will be looking at some strategic risks, and then after morning tea, we're going to uh, work with several scenarios that that we've got to to, that will match up with the other speakers' work today. so I believe you'll be given those scenarios uh, before you leave today. I would really love it if you could read those scenarios as just a little bit of homework. They're only, uh, uh, only short. And that way, when you come in tomorrow, you'll, um, you'll understand w- what they are, what we're um, going to be doing, hopefully. Hopefully. And uh, we, we won't have to spend half an hour reading those <laughs> beforehand. So that's, that's sort of um, uh, what we've got tomorrow. And then that's the end of mine. So
2: thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Rhonda. And, um, Yeah, really looking forward to the workshop tomorrow. I know that um, the short time that we've spent with Rhonda has really sharpened up our risk assessment and thinking about analysis and also, I think, challenging the idea that it's um, all or nothing, that, in fact, um, a lot of what we do is engaging with risk and it's actually getting better decision-making and actually um, reasonable decision-making. I'd like to... um, Uh, also uh, welcome Dr. Helen um, Little. Um, Dr. Little is Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood and Associate Course Director at Macquarie University. And Dr. Little's primary area of research examines individual, social and environmental factors influencing children's engagement in risk-taking behaviour in outdoor play. And her current focus relates to how physical features of the outdoor environment and teaching practices impact on children's experiences of risk-taking in play, and Dr Little is the current Early Childhood Australia representative on the Standards Australia Committee for Playgrounds and Play, Play Equipment. Please join me in welcoming Dr
3: Little.
4: Hi, everyone. Um, okay, so hopefully um, I'll be able to pick up on a few of the points that, um, that Rhonda just made um, through this. Um, so I'm going to begin with, I'm not sure I've got this the right way around. Yes, I do. Um, just touching on some of those definitions, um, some of them will sort of overlap a little bit with what Rhonda's just said. Um, then sort of you know, putting this in the context of the regulatory context um, within the various aspects of the National Quality Framework, um, thinking about how we can promote safe play environments, um, where the playground standards um, sit within that um, as a... Means of um, largely providing for those engineering controls that Roger was just talking about, um, and then thinking about approaches to, to managing risk, and in particular, um, introducing you to a benefit risk um, approach. So, just in terms of some of those definitions, um, I'll probably put these the wrong way around, but what I want to really talk about um, is, is often in everyday talking lay terms or whatever, often the terms risk and hazard are used interchangeably. Um, But we really do need to distinguish between the two terms. So a hazard is what what we're really talking about there, is this identifiable source of harm that's associated with a high probability of serious injury or worst case scenario death. Um, So, it's something that's inherently dangerous and needs to be remedied. On the other hand, a risk is that situation where the outcome is uncertain, uncertain, and this is what Rhonda was just talking about. And the outcome, because of that uncertainty, it can be either predominantly positive, you know, and there can be those um, those benefits, those rewards, um, or... In some cases, the negative aspects will outweigh those positives. Um, But it's about the uncertainty as to which way that goes um, is what we're really talking about in terms of the risk. Um, So, as as Rhonda just explained, I mean, a risk is something that it is possible to negotiate. There may be particular situations and children where our tolerance of the risk... um, you know, it is, is acceptable, and as Rhonda just said, we need to work out where that tolerance lies. In terms of children's play, I guess what we're really talking about um, is, is challenge. Those situations where it's a task or experience um, that involves some level of difficulty and therefore a level of, of possible risk, Um, But it's about children engaging in those self-chosen, challenging, potentially risky activities that are aimed at promoting their development. So, you know, as Rhonda was saying, if our outcome is for children to engage in an experience that they're learning from, that it's going to promote their development, then we need to think about where the risk lies, where the challenge is that you know, results in that outcome that we're wanting. Um, So, you know, again, the outcome of that challenge can be uncertain, um, you know, but for many, you know, the, the goal, you know, from the child's point of view and also, you know, for educators supporting children in their learning and development is to achieve that satisfaction from mastering a new skill. So that's what we're looking for in terms of those outcomes. Um, so, what we're also hoping to promote um, is building children's capacity to manage risk, to assess and manage risk independently for themselves. So, beginning to empower them to, you know, support them in gaining those skills and knowledge to make informed decisions about risk within their daily lives. Um, and, and this is something, you know, it, it is something that we we sort of learn and deal with, you know, life is full of risks. Every day we're, you know, and, and Rhonda you know, gave us a lot of you know, examples of stuff of, you know, where we encounter risks every single day of our lives. And so right from the very earliest years, we need to be um, building that capacity, learning how to appraise those risks and make um, appropriate decisions. And to deal with those challenging situations and the uncertainties that we um, meet with throughout our lives. So, we're not talking when we're talking about risk in play, we're not talking about something that's being reckless, but rather engaging with that um, uncertainty to achieve a particular um, beneficial goal. Right. So, in terms of the regulatory context, I'm not going to go into detail about these, but this is just sort of unpacking very quickly the various layers of the National Quality Framework. So, overarching at all, we have the national law. Now, I've just sort of picked out you know, particular sections that are of particular relevance. Obviously, there's lots of others that will be, um, but these are the key ones in the context of what I'm talking about. So, Section 167 of the national law talks about providers ensuring that every reasonable precaution is taken to protect children from any harm and hazards. So, again, it's going back to making that distinction between hazards and risks and thinking about how we do that. That then feeds through into the national regs. So, again, Reg 85 talks about um, incidents and injury and, and having those policies and procedures um, that, you know, sets out what we're going to do in terms of preventing injuries, what we're going to do if, um, unfortunately, one happens, you know, um, the requirements there under Reg 86 in terms of the reporting of those injuries and so on. That then feeds down into the National Quality Standards, which, again, in terms of Quality Area 2, talks about each child being protected... So and the the elements under that that you know we're taking reasonable precautions and that there's adequate supervision to ensure children are protected from harm and hazard, and again in terms of having those incident and emergency um, management um, procedures, what we're going to do, and importantly how they're going to be practiced and implemented. So you know as leaders thinking about you know where those policies are within the centres, you know where who's roles and responsibility it is to see that all of this is implemented on that daily basis. Um, I've also put quality area three in here in terms of the um, physical environment um, and sort of thinking about, you know, One about the the design of facilities that they are appropriate for the operation of the service. So as, you know, Sean said when he introduced me, you know, my main area of of research and teaching is around outdoor environments. So, you know, thinking about the outdoor environment um, but also the indoor, um, you know, and how that is, um, you know, supports children's play um, and so on. Um, And the fit for purpose bit, you know, so whether those outdoor spaces, the fixtures, the fittings, yeah, are suitable for their purpose. so thinking about you know the equipment that we might be providing for children in outdoor play, whether that is um, you know suitable for purpose in, you know including supporting access for for every child and suitable for the you know the age and the developmental capabilities of the children that are likely to be using it. So all of that sort of talks about the need for making sure that we've taken those precautions to ensure children's safety. But the national law doesn't require services to eliminate all risk and challenge from children's play or environment. So we know that having those opportunities for that challenging and therefore potentially risky Play is important for children's learning and development. And we see this come through again in the NQS. So again, um, the the guide to the the NQF talks about how services plan to ensure that all areas used by children are effectively supervised, um, particularly when children are participating in high-risk activities. So it's not saying that they can't do it, we just need to think about how we're going to put those controls in place to manage them. Um, Ensuring that children are alerted to safety issues and encouraged to develop the skills to assess and manage the risk to their own safety. So again, how we're starting to support children in building and acquiring those risk assessment, risk appraisal skills for themselves so that they can... are mindful of their own safety and the safety of other children. Um, Ensuring that all equipment and materials used in the service meet the relevant safety standards. And I'll talk about that a little bit in terms of playground standards. Um, Terms of quality area three, what features of the physical environment encourage. And this is the the definition of outdoor play from the EYLF. Um, encourage those open-ended interactions, spontaneity, risk-taking. So, again, we're seeing in the documents, in the learning, that risk-taking is really acknowledged in these documents as something that is important for children's learning and development. But we need to think about how we're going to to manage those risks, what risks we're going to tolerate, which ones we can't, and so on. Um, Quality Area 5 the relationships, talks about the importance of the relationships um, between peers, but also with educators, that when we have those supportive relationships, that it enables children to develop the confidence in their ability to express themselves, to engage in new experiences, take those calculated risks. So to accept those challenges, to move out of their comfort zone, um, to engage in those experiences that will support their learning and development. Um, so, just again, briefly, just looking at the EYLF. So, of course, all this is out, you know, feeding down, you know, to what we're sort of wanting for children in terms of those outcomes. So, you know, Many, many of the outcomes and these three in particular talk about this notion of children um, taking um, considered risks, calculated risks, um, and how that uh, supports their learning and development. Um, so I'm not going to go into, into them. But the types of things that we're talking about, particularly in terms of outdoor play, who, who's heard the, the terms of risky play used and stuff and come across any of the risky play literature? I can see a few people um, nodding. So there is now quite a considerable considerable body of research that has looked at children's um, outdoor play and how they're drawn to these particular types of risky play experiences. So things like play with heights, play with speeds, using tools, rough and tumble play, um, Plainly um, dangerous elements, so it might be things like, you know, climbing trees or scrambling over rocks, um, having fire pits, um, those sorts of things. Um, This idea of being uh, disappearing and hiding. So, yeah, obviously, you know, centres have haven't have a, a duty to make sure that children are supervised at all times. We need to be able to see children. We need to be able to supervise it. But the children themselves need to have this perception that they're in their own little world and that they're, you know, forgetting that the adults are around. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um playing with impact, younger children in particular, like sort of throwing their bodies against things, you know, um, or ran, you know, riding bicycles and deliberately, you know, ramming them into the, the fence or poles or whatever, this play with impact. Um, so there's sort of some of the things that we might be talking about in terms of children's um, risk-taking in play and thinking about how we might need to, you know, think about the risks that might... Um, For injury that might be associated with any of those and how we manage them. So, what we're really talking about is balancing those adverse outcomes in terms of potential injury against those beneficial um, outcomes in terms of children's learning and development. So, I guess that. The thing that I want to emphasise here, I suppose, is no play space is risk-free. No matter how much we try to remove the risk of children being hurt uh, or people being hurt, you know, children and adults, um, can still get hurt. We can have super smooth soft fall surfaces in our early childhood centres, um, but when children walk out into the real world, um, you know, the surfaces aren't always flat. There'll be, you know, I don't know, uneven footpaths and all the rest of it. We need to learn how to deal with deal with them. So we need to be alert, I suppose, to those hazards in our environments. Um, you know, not that we particularly want those hazards in our environments, but we need to be alert to them. Um, so the the greater risk really is not providing children with the skills and abilities to identify and mitigate risk when they come across it. So, again, it's about those building those risk appraisal, risk assessment skills in children um, and helping them to, to think about um, their safety and the consequences of their behaviour or consequences of things that they come across in the environment. So, we need to find a way to manage the level of risk so that children aren't exposed to unacceptable risk of serious injury, um, but... Where they do have those opportunities to set themselves the challenges and take those calculated risks in their play. So what this means, you know, potentially in terms of that tolerance of risk, that there may be, you know, an acceptance from t- that from time to time, that there may be minor injuries. Um. Yeah, you know, and these will will occur. I mean, you know, children set themselves challenges sometimes that they, you know, they might misjudge their abilities, and that's where a lot of the injuries do occur. It is through you know often it's through that misjudgment of what they're capable of. But that's where you know the role of the educators comes into play in terms of the supervision, in terms of the guidance and support that they, you know, provide for children to help them to sort of, you know, think about what they're doing, you know. Do you really think that you can climb to that, you know, that height or whatever? You know, do you really think that you can manage that? What might you do need to do to help you manage that? And so on. Um, so thinking about that, you know, guidance and support that the educators, you know, providing to children in order to reduce that likelihood of you know of the minor injuries, but you know there may need to be an acceptance sometimes that you know we, we can't um, you know necessarily eliminate all of them. So the um, the Royal Society for Prevention of Accidents in the U- UK talks about um, the areas where children play should be as safe as necessary, not as safe as possible. So we, we can't we can't eliminate everything. Um, so, those environments that are as safe as necessary. What we're seeking to re- do is to remove the hazards that offer no play value, but actively promote risk and risk um, awareness, and accept that you know accidents may be you know sometimes an intrinsic part of children's play, and that risk taking is something that is part of the value of play. And we saw that in the EYLF. So ultimately, a safe environment is one where safety is seen as safety from, uh, or oh, is not seen, sorry, as safety from all possible harm, but offers safety to explore, experiment, try things out, and take risks. So it's how we sort of manage that so that we're, you know, eliminating those hazards. Um, you know, that are associated with the really serious outcomes that offer no play, or play value and balancing the two. So in terms of providing those safe play environments, you know, in general, playground injuries can be prevented or reduced in se- severity through careful planning, design and maintenance of the environment and the play equipment um, and, of course, supervision of children. So... Being alert to the hazards in the environment. So things like, you know, whether there's hard surfaces under the equipment, you know, whether there's an inadequate falling space, lack of maintenance, um, areas where there's... ..or equipment where there's you know, uh, the potential for children to have, you know, fingers, toes, arms, legs, you know, head entrapped, um, which are the things that lead to serious injury, um, you know, sharp edges, um, things that where they can get tangled up in... Um, you know, high platforms that they could fall from, um, the in, inappropriate use or reckless use um, of equipment um, and play, um, trip hazards, um, overcrowded play areas, um, and equipment that might not be suitable for the age or ability of the children that are using it or have access to it. And that's, you know, particularly thinking about, you know, environments where, you know, um, the space might be used um, by children across a wide Um, Age range. So, this is where the playground standards really come into things. Um, So, the ones that we're talking about mainly are AS 4685, um, which relate to the um, equipment and surfacing. Um, There's also AS 4422, which specifically goes into more more detail about the surfacing and the testing requirements and all of those sorts of things. the AS 4685 relates to the play equipment, so both fixed and mobile, which is quite often the case in early childhood settings. That they'll have mobile equipment more so than fixed. There are specific requirements in terms of supervised early childhood services that tend, and with that, there is a you know a lower fall height limits and some variations to other some of the other um provisions um, than we might sort of see in sort of, you know, like public playgrounds. So there's a, a different set of requirements for supervised early childhood settings. Um, I just want to think about um, talk about this sort of very briefly um, before I sort of look at the specific aspects. So this is the introduction to AS um, 4685. And as a committee we talked really um, we really wanted to focus on the importance of risk taking. So the standards aren't there. the standards are there to eliminate those hazards, they are those engineering controls that, um, that Rhonda talked about in terms of eliminating those hazards that are associated with serious injury. They're not there about taking the challenge or the risk taking out of it completely. So it acknowledges that risk taking is an essential feature of play provision and that you know, we should be offering children the chance to encounter acceptable risks um, as part of stimulating, challenging, and controlled learning environment. Um, the bit that I've put in red there, the principles of safety management are, imp- are applicable to both um, both to workplaces in general as well as play provision. However, the balance between safety and benefits is likely to be different in the two environment. In play provision, exposure to some degree of risk may be of benefit because it satisfies a basic human need and gives children the chance to learn about risk and consequence consequences in a controlled environment so it's you know again sort of going back to what Rhonda was saying about that tolerance of risk how are we going you know what we will accept because of the outcomes that we want but how we're we going to manage that Alright, right, so some of the key things that we need to be aware of in terms of the standards are, firstly, the free height of fall. Um, So these are the specific requirements for supervised early childhood settings. So fixed equipment, the maximum height of fall that we can have is 1,800 millimetres, um, 1.8 metres. Um, There must be impact-absorbing material under that. Um, For mobile equipment, so your A-frames, boards, whatever else you might have, um, Maximum height is um, 1,500 millimetres. Again, there needs to be, um, at that height, there needs to be impact absorbing, um, surfacing under that. And the reason for those heights and for the need for impact um, attenuating surfacing under them is, again, about eliminating the hazards. That we know that one of the um, major causes of injury for young children is falling from heights. So this is about the engineering controls that are eliminating those hazards um, and why it's important that we adhere to them. Um, Just in terms of that, the the standards um, also talk about the role of educators in all of this. Um, So the standards say educators shall apply a risk, and I'll argue later on a risk-benefit, Um, approach to the setting up of movable play equipment suitable to the ages and developmental stages of the children using the equipment. So, again, it's sort of coming back to that role of the educators um, in terms of um, providing for those controls and the management. Um, The other thing to think about, apart from the height of the equipment, is the space around the equipment, so the impact area. So the key one to think about here in terms of um, movable equipment in particular, um, which has that maximum free free height of fall of 1.5 metres, that means needs an impact area of 1.5 metres in all directions around it. And the reason for that is uh, if the child does happen to fall that they're not landing on another piece of equipment or something that can cause them harm when they when they fall or if they fall. Um, As it says down the bottom there, um, for fall heights less than 600 millimetres where it's um, non-moving equipment, um, that impact area can be reduced um, so we can allow for things like stepping stones, balancing, you know, lower balancing sort of beams, whatever, uh, and those sorts of things. One of the things to... Oh, no, that's on the next slide. Um, so then, there's the surfacing requirements, as I said. So this is AS 4422. Um, so for fall heights, anything above 600 millimetres, there needs to be an appropriate impact attenuating surface underneath it. Um, so it might be the the unitary um, surfacing, so that you know rubber pore stuff that they they use um, quite often. Or if, you know, as we um, you know, are looking for these days, you know, for providing more natural um, environment, outdoor environments for children, that you might have um, bark um, softfall under it instead. Um, you know, the requirements there in terms of the minimum depth that that needs to be um, and where it needs to be maintained um, to at least a depth of 200 millimetres in order for it to still have that surfacing. Um, that impact attenuating um, property, um, and that is that's important in terms of eliminating you know those serious injuries. Um, for fall heights below six hundred millimetre, this is no requirement for having impact attenuating surfacing under it, um, unless there's force movement, so things like swings. One of the important things to note with this is that although Um, in early childhood services that um, mobile equipment can be a maximum height of, um, of 1,500 millimetres or if you've got fixed equipment, it can be 1,800 millimetres. You also need to think about that in terms of what your surfacing has been tested to. So when they come out and do the testing of the surfacing, if, say, for example, they tell you, no, your surfacing only tests to... 200 millimetre, 1,200 millimetres, so 1.2 metres, that is your maximum height. You can no longer go to your 1.5 or your 1.8. That surfacing can only support heights to 1.2 or 1,200 millimetres, so that's all you can go to. So that's important thing to, to know um, when that testing is done. Um, One of the other things that I want to just touch on briefly um, is what the playground standards have to say in terms of nature play. So the playground standards are mainly talking about, you know, the equipment, sort of, you know, built, manufactured equipment. But more and more, you know, um, we are wanting to sort of uh, introduce natural elements into playgrounds um, and where we sort of sit with that. Um, So if we're having things like logs or boulders um, and so on, Um, other landscape elements that are thinking about what we might need to think about in terms of them. So, again, you know, when we have those sorts of elements in there, we need to do a risk assessment to determine whether or not um, we might need to sort of think about some of those standards. So, if we're using, you know, logs for children to balance on, climb on, um, boulders, things like that for children to climb on... um, you know, thinking about what hazards might be involved. Is there the, the potential there for children to fall from a height? You know, if we're going to allow children to climb trees and things like that, do we need to, although the standard, you know, the playground standards, as I said, relate to the equipment, but do we need to apply those standards to it? So do we need to say, OK, if we're going to allow the children to climb the, the trees here or if we're going to, um, you know, have these logs that um, that they're going to be climbing on, do we need to have you know, appropriate um, impact attenuating surfacing under that and treat them the same as if it was a piece of equipment so that we have eliminated those um, hazards? Um, playground standards also talk about risk assessment. Um, won't go into this because I know that Rhonda's going to spend a lot of time about talking about that um, tomorrow. But I'm also going to want to introduce this notion of a risk-benefit assessment, uh, which is this, you know, a means of sort of bringing together, looking at both those benefits um, that the children will gain from it in terms of their learning and development and what the risk might be and brings it together into a single judgment. Um, so, again, this is talking about those, uh, those risk-benefit um, assessments. So, this is, um, again, from AS uh, 4685, uh, um, you know, and talking about this. Uh, particularly, want to draw your attention, I suppose, to the bit down the bottom there. It talks about operators of um, supervised early childhood settings um, in particular, taking into account the role of supervisors in injury prevention, prevention um, and to minimise unnecessary and inappropriate restrictions on play in these services. So we don't want to be, you know, restricting, you know, we don't want to be taking those risks and challenges out of children's play. They are important for them. Um, so the importance, you know, of educators in terms of, you know, thinking about how they're going to balance those those risks um, against those, you know, positive outcomes... Um, so, effective risk management, um, you know, really sort of talks about, um, you know, and this is from the guide to the, to the NQF, um, you know, consider the effectiveness of injury management processes, the risk identification, the conducting of a risk-benefit analysis. Um, so, we need to be thinking about how we're going to support um, children in risky play. Um, you know, how the environments are organised to ensure um, effective supervision um, and how, you know, services are proactive and responsive and flexible in using professional judgement in terms of preventing um, injury. Um, You know, so, you know, part of that is, you know... um, distinguishing between what might be acceptable or unacceptable in terms of risk so that tolerance of risk you know and I'm not going to go into that because I know you're going to be doing you know, a lot of work around this with Rhonda um, tomorrow um, so again um, you know thinking about um, you know which hazards we need to modify or remove depending on that risk assessment, uh, which ones might be acceptable or desirable because they create those opportunities for children to gain access to those benefits. What ones might we actually want to create to enhance children's opportunities for potential benefits? It's an interesting one, so you can have a think about that. What has to be done about identified hazards, if anything? um, You know, and can this hazard actually be reframed and managed as a challenge? So, again, you know, thinking about, you know, those ways that you're going to sort of deal with sort of some of those risks um, in the environment. Um, So one step in that is, um, you know, this issue, sort of I suppose, traditional standard risk assessment and... Rhonda sort of, you know, touched on this a little bit, um, you know, in her presentation, um, you know, standard risk assessments, you know, look at, you know, what's the likelihood of an injury, how serious is that injury likely to be? Um, you can come up with a risk score by, you know, um, multiplying the two together um, And we might sort of come up with a risk matrix, something like this. So this risk matrix is taken from the ASEQA risk assessment and management tool um, that some of you may have come across. um, That gives us a means of sort of thinking about, you know, those that we're going to have to deal with, how we might deal with them, when we might deal with them. Uh, and all of those sorts of things that hopefully you can sort of think through and, um, you know, Rhonda will, will provide you with some tools for sort of dealing with or thinking about um, in the workshop um, tomorrow. All right, so what I want to do now, I suppose, is to move away from your traditional sort of risk assessment and introduce this idea of a risk-benefit approach. Um, and I'm actually going to s- s- um, swap that around. Um, so the risk-benefit approach um, initially was proposed um, by the Play Safety Forum in the UK, um, and they developed this management, Managing Risk in Play provision document, which you know, sets out all the background um, for the importance of risk in play um, and how we might go about management and propose this risk-benefit assessment process. Um, A few years um, after that, actually it was probably almost 10 years after that, um, Play Australia um, developed, uh, based on that, um, developed this Getting the um, Balance Right um, document that again provides um, guidance on applying a risk-benefit approach. Um, the Canadians have also recently come up with um, a toolkit for doing it. So all, all of these sort of come back to the original UK um, document. Um, the Canadian one is the one that, um, that the ASEQA risk management um, uh, assessment um, tool um, refers to. Um, so these are all resources that you might um, you know, look at in terms of you developing... Um, a means of um, managing risk um, in play from a risk-benefit approach. So all of those documents talk about it in terms of risk-benefit. I'm actually going to swap that around and say that we adopt a benefit-risk approach, that we put the emphasis when we're talking about children's play, then we actually put the emphasis on the benefit side of it um, because that gets lost. So this is sort of basically what what the framework looks like. So underpinning it all is the policy framework that really sort of sets out that underlying approaches, procedures that we might put in place that feeds into the benefit-risk assessment. And there's two parts of that, the technical inspection, which is sort of really around that hazard identification side of things, and this um, notion of a um, dynamic benefit-risk assessment. So, Policy framework, that all feeds into that, but it also, based on you know, what we observe, how we monitor it, feeds back into that process again. So it's an ongoing sort of cyclical sort of process. So I'm just going to talk to each one of these um, a little bit. So the policy framework is really establishing those values and criteria for understanding. So what we might think about this is in terms of a play policy. So what it would do would be to make very explicit the rationale for the positive duty that services have for offering children risk-taking opportunities. And we've seen that in what we looked at or what I showed you in terms of what the NQS says, what the EYLF says about the benefits of, the, of risk-taking for children's learning and development. So we can establish the importance of providing this type of play for children. But the other side of it is also providing a context for how we're going to make judgments in particular circumstances. So the steps that are taken to eliminate hazards. So this might include things like you know, what you, sh- you schedule for routine inspection and maintenance Of equipment is, who has the roles and responsibilities for doing some of that stuff, Um, what steps are taken um, for, you know, to ensure that those reasonable precautions to avoid injury are taken. So supervision is obviously one of the key ones there. But also things like discussions with the children about safety issues Working with the children to develop rules, for want of a better word, if necessary, around the use of particular equipment or how they're going to play in particular areas or whatever. So this is part of that process of empowering children to begin to take responsibility for their own safety and that of others. And it does need to reflect that balance approach of balancing those benefits, the play value, against the potential risk for injury. So that then sort of feeds into the aspects of the benefit risk assessment itself. So the first one, as I said, is the technical inspection. So this is the things like that routine checking of the equipment and the environment to identify and Eliminate, reduce, modify, whatever um, controls might need be needed in terms of those hazards in the environment. Um, so, you know, looking at the wear and tear, the damage, cleanliness, to identify whether there's potential hazards. So whether, you know, things have gotten, you know, there's something that can't be fixed or whatever, you need to remove that equipment or whether you need to sort of, you know, take it out of use for the moment until you get it fixed or whatever the case may be. Um This is where, you know, your standard risk assessment of looking at that likelihood and severity of injury might come into it in terms of, you know, the relative risk and what you might need to do in terms of it. Um, You know, setting out that program of repairs and maintenance, um, supervision requirements. Um, So, again, going back to when we looked at um, the bits from the um, NQS where it talked about, you know... um, Adequate supervision, you know, particularly when children are engaged in high-risk activities. So thinking about where that might sit in this. Then there's the other side of it. And in some ways this is, um, if you know, if, as Rhonda said, you've got all those other things in place at that high level, these are the things that you can then do on that sort of lower level, you know, um, as the children are engaged in the play. So, this is the real time decision making. So, using, you know, educators using their observations of the children and the children's play and thinking about whether or not there are potential interventions by um, those that are supervising the children. And by intervention, I don't mean necessarily stopping the play. It could just be, you know, those words of guidance. You know, have you thought about what if we do this? You know, what if you do that? you know, those, those open-ended questions to help children think about what they're doing and the consequences of, of what they might be doing and whether, you know, they need to sort of think about doing things differently. Um, by its nature, this can be complex and fluid, um, you know, depending on the context and the children involved. You know, the risk that we might accept for one child might be very different to what we might accept for another child based on our understanding of that child and their abilities. So all of this is really based on having that sound grasp of how children learn and grow through play, the in-depth knowledge of individual children, their risk-taking disposition. I'm sure any one of you can think about children who are really sort of out there risk-takers and those who are really risk-avoiders. Um, and there will be you know, children all along that continuum. Um, yeah, you know, having an understanding of the different types of risks and the associated benefits. So going back to you know those different types of risky play, and so on. So the risk benefit framework, I suppose, in in practice, it becomes a narrative of what that looks at. So it's about articulating the benefits. So, why an activity is planned, how the children will benefit from it, and we might use research, children's interests, your prior experiences, or whatever to justify that. Um, Identifying the risks. So, again, that can go, be going back to doing that sort of standard risk assessment. You know, whether there's other people that we might need to call on their opinions as to whether or not things are safe. So say if we're going to allow children to climb a tree, do we need to potentially um, have an arborist check the tree, that it's sound? And, you know, because, I mean, from a lay point of view, I mean, we might not be able to tell that, you know, that if they let climb on that branch, it's about to snap. Um, You know, so do we need an expert opinion? Um, Thinking about the options, so how are we going to proceed to manage those risks, so articulating them, articulating what strategies we might put in place, weighing up the benefits and risks. So are those benefits going to outweigh the risk and therefore, you know, how do we proceed? Um, The action taken and importantly, you know, how are we going to review this? All right, so this, just to to very quickly finish up, um, just an example of what this might look like. Um, So this is from um, the um, Australian document, Getting the Balance Right, one of their examples. So if we were going to have rocks or boulders as play elements, uh, what we might think about. So starting off at that policy sort of level, um, philosophy you know, articulating why we would provide this experience in terms of what it's going to provide for children's learning and development. Thinking about what the benefits are in terms of, um, you know, their their development. So, you know, unlike a standard play equipment where, you know, the spacing between rungs on a ladder or whatever are all very nice and even even, and it almost becomes autopilot, you know, to climb them. When you've got something like like boulders or a tree or whatever, you've got to stop and think about it, Um, how you're going to approach it. So the problem-solving involved in that Um, allows children to develop more sophisticated balance skills um, that's not possible with manufactured equipment. Um, The risks, okay. so thinking about, you know, hazards, so whether children are going to collide with each other, they'll fall from the boulders, whether there might be, you know... um, entrapment points where they might get their foot stuck between different boulders and things like that. So thinking about those sorts of issues. Um, and then coming down to your risk-benefit um, approach. So thinking about, you know, the selection and placement of the boulders to reduce those hazards, um, you know, thinking about whether or not you had, need to have um, impact absorbing undersurfacing under them should a child fall um, and those sorts of things. Um, so, that's just one example that's a very brief example. I mean, you you know, potentially go into more detail than that, um, but hopefully that sort of just gives you a little bit of an overview of the process and what it might um, look like. Um, so, thank you, and I'll just put some references there on the end if you want some, to read more into it.
0: Thank you so much, Dr Little, and it's great to know that somebody with your expertise is informing the development of Australian standards in, in, in playground equipment and outdoor play. That's really, that's really fantastic. I'd like to now welcome our next guest speaker, Sandra Vale. Um, Sandra has a background in public health, nutrition, with experience in project implementation, resource development and training. Prior to becoming the National Allergy Strategy Manager, Sandra was the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, ASCII, Education Officer, involved in developing and implementing the National um, Allergy Strategy. Um, Sandra is currently um, undertaking a PhD at the University of Western Australia, and the topic is a public health approach to infant feeding for allergy prevention. Please show a warm welcome to Sandra.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to um, talk this morning and um, I'm not going to be able to do my uh, 30-minute presentation in 10 minutes, uh, but I'm going to try and get through it a little bit quicker uh, because I do realise I'm the difference uh, between you and your next coffee. So I'm going to be talking about managing anaphylaxis in children's education and care and I realise that... um, In your world, uh, anaphylaxis is one small part of what you do and what you have to manage, Um, but it is a a very important part Um, and the the consequences, if it's not managed well, um, is uh, catastrophic, not only for the child, the family, but even for you and your staff um, working in the service. So it is something that... You know, as a community, you need to to all work together to make sure that you are managing the risks. So just a bit of context, the National Allergy Strategy is a partnership between uh, the Peak Medical Body, ASCIA, and the um, Peak um, Patient Support Organisation, Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia. Um, we uh, develop all of our resources in consultation with key stakeholders and we have the consumer at the um, centre of everything that we do. So we're very much consumer-focused. So I'm going to cover quite a few things. Um, so, you know, anaphylaxis is an issue. What do we know around anaphylaxis management in um, children's education and care? The regulations, are the regulations enough? Um, key areas of risk, our best practice um, approach and some resources that can help you. So anaphylaxis is the most severe form of allergic reaction. It is life-threatening um, and it needs prompt adrenaline um, administration as the treatment um, and it also needs medical observation. So kids can anaphylax or adults for that matter, can anaphylax, uh, be given adrenaline, recover, but then actually um, Um, have a second reaction or not recover um, and need further medical care. So it is important that, um, you know, in managing anaphylaxis that you realise that it's not just a matter of giving the EpiPen or Anapen and, uh, and moving on, they do need to go off to hospital. And really critically, early recognition and treatment is critical and that's what saves lives. So there's lots of causes of anaphylaxis um, in your area. Food allergy is probably your your biggest concern. Um, you do have insect allergy that's also a concern, and you know maybe uh, latex. But I'd say food allergy is the one that, on a day to day basis, is going to be your biggest stress. And we always have this focus on nuts, peanuts and tree nuts, and everyone knows about peanut allergy, Um, but milk and egg allergy are more common in young children, and milk allergy particularly is really difficult to manage if you don't have good policies and and practices in place. So... um, And then sometimes you might have a child and they actually don't even know what's causing anaphylaxis and that's really hard too. So we're not saying, look, this is easy. We know it's not easy and that's why we've tried to create some resources um, to help support you. Um, It's common as well. One in 10 babies has a confirmed food allergy in Australia, one of the highest rates in the world. So um, as they get older, some babies will outgrow their allergies, but it's still around 1 to 12 and 25. We don't have great data. Um, Preschoolers will have um, a food allergy. So what do we know? So we conducted, we've had a few surveys conducted in Australia in children's education and care services, uh, particularly long day care. Um, and then we recently did a what we called a baseline survey so that um, prior to implementing our um, or releasing our best practice guidelines to see what the state of play was. Um, so what practices are in place at the moment? So we know a few things now. We know that there's high levels of staff confidence but low levels of training and that's really worrying because that's almost the worst thing because staff don't know what they don't know but they're confident that they can manage an anaphylaxis. So it's really important that we address that. First aid training with a tiny small portion of how to use an EpiPen some courses not even including ANAPEN, um, is being considered as anaphylaxis training and it's not anaphylaxis training. It doesn't give you enough information to know how to uh, recognise, how to respond, but importantly, how to prevent um, exposure to known allergens. Two-thirds of um, services reported um, having a general use adrenaline injector. Now, they're not mandatory, but are they a good idea? Yeah, they are. Some babies will have their first anaphylaxis in your child care service. Um, and if you don't have a general use device, then you have less ability to treat that child's anaphylaxis quickly and you're relying on um, paramedic services. Only half of services have trainer devices. How can staff know how to use an EpiPen or Anapen if they don't actually have a trainer device to practice with? So that's really important. And a third of services have um, adrenaline ejectors locked away in in the medicine's cabinet or somewhere else. Now, this is a device that you need to be able to get to really quickly. The last thing you want to do is lock it in a cupboard somewhere or a drawer somewhere uh, or a medical cabinet. It's got to be out of reach of the kids, but it should never be locked away um, because that just delays getting access to it especially if, you know, only one person or a couple of people have got access to the key to unlock it. But we also know that staff want clear policies and procedures, and this is where I think we can come in and potentially help. So when we look at um, anaphylaxis that's occurred in the community, I like to use the Swiss cheese model as a nice analogy of... um, you know, when things um, go wrong and when things go really wrong. And if you look with the the Swiss cheese um, little model here, you can see that the line goes through and it doesn't come through into here. So at some point here, something's happened to stop that risk progressing. Um, same again here. It comes all the way to here and here it gets stopped there. And it's when we have the situation here where unfortunately all those holes have lined up. So for some reason, at some point, there wasn't a procedure in place to stop that event occurring that we've had an anaphylaxis and potentially a catastrophic event. And you can see here, these are all the near misses. And these are your key areas of learning. It's really important to learn from these experiences so that you never get this one. And we know that we can't eliminate risk. It's about minimising the risk. But doing this, learning from this, making sure you've got the checks and balances in place, those good procedures in place, so that you can um, prevent um, kids being exposed to things you know they're allergic to. So I just want to quickly go through the current regulations and um, and I know there's a lot, like I say, that you have to comply with and all of that, but um, as part of the work that we've done, we've had to have a look at them to see, right, well, what exists and, and does it actually, uh, is it enough to mitigate the risk? And so when we look at things like site sites specific policy, uh, risk management plan, risk minimisation strategies, communication plans and emergency response plans, you can see where I've referred to the the current national regs. Now, they sometimes have different terminology than what we refer to, um, but there's something in the regulations that addresses the risk. Um, But there's nothing around risk minimisation strategies. If we have a look at allergy documentation, so how do you know what, who's allergic to what? Um, again, the and I will say this, Australia is one of the only countries in the world that has one nationally standardised emergency response plan or anaphylaxis action plan. Um, and this is your best friend because no matter which child has an allergy... This one action plan is your medical documentation of what they're allergic to, how to recognise um, an allergic reaction, and what to do to manage it. Um, so, again, it is addressed in the regulations, so it's not called the same thing, and it doesn't specifically say that it has to be an ASCII action plan, and um, and we say it should, because then everybody's got the same thing. Um, Parents having to provide the ASCII action plan, there's no reference to that specifically. Um, individualised anaphylaxis care plans. This is addressed in the, um, in the regs, but again, it's not called that, uh, but it essentially is a similar thing. And then um, um, recommendations around reviewing and updating those um, individualised care plans. So you can see... This isn't currently addressed. It could be covered by the national regs, but it's not currently, and there's nothing around um, the risk minimisation. If we look at emergency response, um, so this is largely covered. Um, my thing's gone a bit wacko there. Um, But here, it's the adrenaline injector checks. So having some sort of procedure in place that um, they regularly checked, whether it's the general use device if you have one or the kids' prescribed device to make sure that you have devices that are not out of date. Staff training. So, again, my things have moved a little bit. Um, so, the this is um, all staff should undertake anaphylaxis training and we say all staff even though that's not currently what the regs are, which is at least one staff member on duty... Um, but all staff should because you need to be able to recognise it early um, and um, um, and there's also nothing around what constitutes anaphylaxis training or good quality anaphylaxis training so we need that to be addressed better as well in the national regs and I know a approves training but in terms of what is approved that... that um, I guess protocol that they use as the basis um, doesn't necessarily mean that you know the training that that um, that is approved is always going to meet all of the requirements. Um, refresher training, so um, it's important that you that staff are regularly, so at least twice a year. Are uh, refresh. What are the signs and symptoms of um, allergic reactions and anaphylaxis and how do I use um, the uh, adrenaline injectors? How do I position a baby or a young child um, if they're having anaphylaxis? Those sorts of things. Really important. Sorry. Um, Staff record is covered. And um, food allergen management training, um, it blows my mind that at the moment... Um, in children's education and care, there is no requirement for staff to undertake food allergen management training. But then I will say that in the community broadly, there is no legislation requiring anybody owning a food business to undertake food allergen management training. So with the prevalence of food allergy that we have in Australia, that is a major gap across Australia, not just in children's education and care. Um, But it could be covered in the regs. And then uh, community and peer education, really important. Kids can learn about their friends' allergies and um, things like that really young and there's some great uh, resources out there to help you do that so that everyone understands why, you know, um, little Johnny can't um, share food with the other kids. Um, And also the parents should be educating their own children as well. Um, and then communication with any volunteers about your policy and also, as I said, the age-appropriate education programs. Um, and then post-incident management and incident reporting. This is where, this is where the learning begins. And um, it's not to, uh, to place blame. None of this is ever about, you know, saying, well, if that person had just done their job, then this wouldn't have happened. That's not what it's about. It's about yeah. learning. You know, things happen, accidents happen. Sometimes there's a gap in the, in the policy or the procedure that wasn't, you know, um, thought about. And um, so having those conversations after a near-miss or when an incident does occur, is really important because that's when the learning happens and that's when you can make a change and then that's when you potentially save a life. So, again, it's not uh, directly covered, but it could be covered by the national REGs. So, what are the key areas of risk? Um, So, no policies or procedures in place. That's number one. People need to know what they need to do and how they need to do it. And um, the even biggest risk, if you don't have this, is when things change, that's when things tend to always go wrong. If the cook is, uh, or chef is sick and someone else is preparing the food and they don't know the kids and they don't know the food allergies and they don't know that there's special meals frozen in the freezer for little Johnny who's got a severe milk allergy... Um, if um, there's an incursion or an excursion, all of those things where something is different about the day, that's when something's most likely to go wrong. Um, so it's really important that you not only have your policies and procedures in place but that you also make sure that someone new coming in to fill a role or it might be an educator stepping into a different role um, that they know what, the, what they need to be um, mindful of and they understand the systems and, um, and they can make sure that there's checks in place to make sure the right food's being given or that a, a child with insect allergies is not, not running around outside with no shoes on or those sorts of things. So, um, if children at risk are not identified, that's a problem because, of course, then there's n- no risk minimisation. Uh, you don't have a, a anaphylaxis healthcare plan that's gone through, right, well, where are the risks for this child for these particular allergies that they have that we need to manage? So, that's really um, a major area of risk. Um, if the risk minimisation strategies are not um, appropriate or they're not communicated, so there's no point saying, right, OK, we've got this um, you know, anaphylaxis care plan, this is what we're going to do, but nobody knows what, what those risk minimisation strategies are that need to be put in place. So you've got to communicate about them. Um, if there's no emergency response plan, if nobody knows what to do in an emergency, um, as I said, anaphylaxis requires um, uh, early recognition and treatment so everyone needs to know what's their role. If, if someone has an anaphylaxis and you don't get a warning when it's going to happen, if someone has an anaphylaxis, okay, who's going to do what? Who's going to stay with the child? Who's going to get the uh, adrenaline injector? Who's going to ring the ambulance? Who's going to ring the parents after we've run the ambulance? All of those things have to be worked through and you need to practice that like you would practice a fire drill. Um, if there's inadequate staff training, again, staff don't recognise that it's anaphylaxis, um, don't know how to use the adrenaline injector, might inject themselves, and then the child doesn't get um, the adrenaline. You know, all of these things, and all of these little things that can go wrong, that's where you've got to think, OK, is that little Swiss cheese model now starting to line up? Because we've got... Our chef is off sick, so now we've got that's risk number one. Our staff aren't all trained, so there's risk number two. Um, you know, note that cabinet um, where we get the EpiPen or the Anapen from is locked. So there's risk number three. So now we've got a delay. So you've got to look: are all these things now starting to line up? Um, So I've just talked about the adrenaline injectors not being stored appropriately. So um, as I said, I know that you do need to lock medications away but not adrenaline injectors. They're exempt from having to be under lock and key. So they should be out of reach of children but they should be easily accessible to staff and staff need to know where they are. Um, Lack of communication education, uh, which I think I've covered a few examples of that already. And um, lack of incident reporting and following up. That's as I said, that's where the learning uh, really happens. So um, we've developed these best practice guidelines. There is a bookmark at the um, on the table near the entry there, um, which has the web link to a website. And I'm just going to show you a few resources. Um, I just wanted to put this up so that you could see that these guidelines have been developed with very broad consultation with um, uh, ASECWA involved, we've um, conducted surveys of parents and people working in children's education and care to get information, um, and then we've drafted and circulated drafts. And So they're, they're um, a team effort um, from the sector to um, come up with what um, is um, considered to be the best practice guidelines, and they were launched late last year. So this is the website. This is what this is where the good stuff comes in. So this is um, an Allergy Aware website. It's um, for schools and for childcare. So there's a a childcare dedicated section and a school dedicated section. And you can access the best practice guidelines from there, a checklist, risk minimisation strategies, and of course, what you do in your service is going to be different to what you do in your service because. You might be managing different allergies. Um, you might have a different number of kids. Um, you know, there's all sorts of differences between different services. So you've got to look at your individual situation um, to determine what's appropriate. Um, we have sample policies there, um, sampled letters to the community, um, a template for an individualised um, anaphylaxis care plan for each child that's at risk, um, we've created an anaphylaxis risk management plan for you to actually go through, okay, each different thing that you need to consider in your service and what you might need to do to um, mitigate that risk. Um, a template for incident reporting, a template for documenting um, kids' food allergies and then there's a whole range of um, training resources that are free of charge. They are online, they're not face-to-face, which sometimes is preferred, but they're free and they take no longer than an hour to do and the refresher training is only um, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, So uh, there's some ASCII resources, some Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia resources and they really are a great resource because they do have a 1300 number and you can ring and talk to them and they will help you. Um, and then we also have sections for parents and health professionals and, um, and even for the kids themselves, obviously not really young ones, um, where they can access information themselves. So it's designed to be a resource hub. So anything that you need to be able to help you manage anaphylaxis in children's education and care, you can access from this one resource hub. Um, it will link out to other um, other sites like ASCIA and Allergy in Anaphylaxis Australia um, and also to our um, food allergen management training. So we also have um, free online food allergen management training specifically for childcare. So there are the other sections. So you can see. And I think we're taking questions later. So thank you.
0: Please welcome Cassandra Tinning, Cassandra's social worker has been working with Canberra Health Services at CARU on and off since 2000. In the off periods, Cassandra's worked in the United Kingdom as a child protection worker and in adoption services. Um, Cassandra's passion for collaborative and therapeutic work with children and families and as a clinical subject matter expert for the ACT, Cassandra is part of the national working group to respond to the Royal Commission into institutionalised child sexual abuse regarding volume 10 of the recommendations which relates to children and young people with harmful sexual behaviour. Please join me in welcoming Cassandra.
5: Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks so much, everyone. Folks, if you can't hear me, if I'm not being clear enough, could you just give me a little wave? Um, Sometimes I get uh, quiet and whisper into my beard. So if you can't hear me, just let me know. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that we're meeting on the lands of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people here in Canberra. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that this place has been known for a long time as a meeting place. It's a place where people, Indigenous people, have come together to be able to talk about important business, make sense of their community and their life, and care for each other from a community perspective. And I hope that maybe today we might be able to bring some of that that's deeply seeped into the Uh, the land, the culture, the water here, uh, into our work. And I'd like to acknowledge and welcome any Torres Strait Islander or Aboriginal people who are here today. I'd also like to acknowledge that uh, what I'm about to speak about uh, can actually bring up some big emotions for folks. Um, So it is really important to acknowledge that I work in the space of child abuse and child protection. I talk about children and sexual behaviour all the time. And so I'm comfortable with it and have an awareness and understanding of what feels comfortable and okay for me. But I might have quite a different um, experience and feel for this topic than you have, and that's perfectly okay. If you find that issues are coming up for you, worrying thoughts or uncomfortable feelings, please feel free to... um, get up and move your body. You're welcome to get engage some proprioceptive um, uh, muscles and you're welcome to walk around or go get a a drink. Take an opportunity to do some self-care practices. So using your senses, thinking about what you can see, what you can taste, what you can smell, what you can hear or being able to concentrate on feeling your feet on the floor, your bum on your seat and know that you're here and safe at this point in time in this room. What I want to cover today um, includes um, a traffic light brochure that you'll see on your table. It was a handout popped around um, earlier today. I'm not going to... I'm not from a regulatory background. Um, What I want to do is give you some information to understand how you might be able to um, inform your knowledge of regulation um, and um, uh, safety practices and principles in relation to children and sexual behaviour. What I want to cover first is um, a bit of about te- uh, the terminology I'm going to use today, but I also just want to land us in Canberra and our surrounding area just right now. So you folks might have seen uh, that the census came out recently and what the census described is our area of Canberra is now one of the most culturally and religiously diverse communities in Australia. That means that the children and families that you work with are going to be um, from a really diverse background. They're going to have a range of different uh, values and understandings about children, about raising children, the role of educators and the role of um, how our community is supported by regulation and practice. And it also means that the staff, the educators that you employ and work with, are also going to come from a more diverse representation than we've ever experienced before. So the reason why it's really important for you to think about that is that, and exactly at this time, is that in the last decade there was a significant piece of work conducted through the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sexual Abuse that recognised that the Australian community has an extremely diverse range of understanding about children and sexual behaviour. And that um, our institutions and structures that we all presumed would keep children safe and protect children have actually not been doing a good enough job over time. So the point of the Royal Commission is to start pulling together this kind of like amorphous, like hard to put your finger on it, kind of mercurial, big piece of institution, which is our education system, right, from early childhood through into formalised education systems, trying to bring into practice some guidance and principles about how we respond to children and sexual behaviour. And it's not there yet. So I'm still part of a working group um, that's trying to bring together some guidance, particularly around sexualised behaviours or sexually harmful behaviours. Let me flick over to my uh, terminology bit. And at the moment, the language that we're using is harmful sexual behaviour. We're using that terminology to try and capture the spectrum of children's sexual behaviour when it's moved from normal sexual behaviour into concerning and problematic sexual behaviour. I think it's really important to acknowledge um, as well that... Um, in the context of understanding children's sexual behaviour, what I hear from educators and parents in my role at the Child at Risk Health Unit is that sometimes children engage in normal, what I would say is normal child sexual behaviour, and children are described as being perpetrators of abuse. I want to acknowledge that labelling kids with a judgmental or emotive language Uh, when they're engaging in whether it's normal right through to harmful to other children or to themselves, sexual behaviour, labelling them with judgmental terminology is unhelpful. It stops children from being able to engage with their educators to make sense of what's happening for them. It's challenging then for other educators and other people working with the child to be able to respond in a kind and generous way to the child. And it also creates confusion and concern and a lot of harm and distress for the child themselves and the families and community around the child. So some of the work that we do, and I'm just thinking from some of our, um, the explanation that's been given earlier by our esteemed colleagues, um, I suspect that I sit in the, in the place around, I'm providing treatment. I'm wanting to talk to you today about controls but I'm also wanting to bring to your attention that there are ways that we can um, unintentionally further harm children apart from the actions of harm that you might see in your centres or in your services. And that would include using judgmental language like labelling a three year old a perpetrator of abuse when that child might be engaging in sexual behaviour that needs attending to but is not a perpetrator of abuse. Out of the work of the Royal Commission, we will be coming up with um, much clearer strategies um, uh, and information for a range of different uh, institutions and settings, and I really hope that one of the areas that we work on as a matter of priority is your space, um, so that you're able to get some clear guidance and support in the early years. The reason why I wanted to talk about the traffic light model today is because it's an evidence-based framework for you to be able to support your educators but also your families in an understanding that children display sexual behaviour and that it's there's a continuum of sexual behaviour that children display from green light behaviour because even the language of normal, normal behaviour, developmentally appropriate behaviour, is challenging for um, from a judgmental point of view, but also it's challenging for our parents and um, our, sometimes our educators to understand. But also then being able to move through into orange light behaviour, which is concerning behaviour that you need to seek some support or guidance with, and your educators also need to have a clear understanding of what to do with. And also your parents and carers need to have an understanding that you will intervene and provide um, a support structure in relation to. And also being able to explain that there are red light behaviours, concerning behaviours, that might require you um, and your educators to contact Child Protection Services, whether that's DCJ in New South Wales or um, CYPS here in Canberra. Um, that it may require you in your centres to do a significant piece of work in terms of managing, mitigating, or responding to um, concerning red light behaviours if they occur. Because it's hard to talk about this stuff, it's really handy to have a um, a framework that you can call on that's evidence based. Um, and I just want to direct you to it's um, this. Framework is currently available from True, which is a service formerly known as Queensland Sexual Health and Family Planning. The um, red light behaviour, the, sorry, the traffic light behaviour um, brochure, actually when you look online, you can access uh, further training um, and other uh, a an updated version of this brochure. So the handout that you've got um, is um, has been updated. It's the easiest, most straightforward way that I can communicate this important topic to you today, which is why I'm calling on it at the moment. Um, but I would really invite you to have a look at the true resources. Okay, what I want to run us through is just thinking about what we, um, what it actually looks like when we um, when we're talking about the spectrum of children's sexual behaviour. So for kiddos who are from young infancy up until about a four-year-old, we'd be looking at the type of spontaneous... um, engagement so without being coached or prompted kids are engaging in this sort of behaviour and sometimes your educators will experience this behaviour or you might in your own community or in your own life outside of work um, you might come across children engaging in this behaviour and what it looks like is a sense of for young kiddos it would be really comfortable being nude It would be um, during a nappy change, maybe uh, touching their genitals, playing with their genitals or sometimes even engaging in masturbation because masturbation is something that feels really nice. It's an enjoyable sensory experience. So we wouldn't be surprised or thinking it's concerning if a child's engaging in um, a light-hearted, spontaneous engagement in masturbation while they're having a nappy change or they're nude. I'll talk a bit more about when we might, in, particularly in relation to young children, masturbation and nappy changes, as we move through the spectrum. But what we also might see is uh, young children wanting to engage in um, touching the breasts or bottom um, of their carer that they have a, a close relationship with, sometimes um, Young kids, again, I'm talking about the not to four-year-olds, might put their hand down at an educator's top and hold on to um, a breast or hold on to their chest um, while they're comfort seeking, while they're wanting to be soothed off to sleep, or while they might be having a bottle. So it's that sense of, I'm comfortable engaging. I'm not seeing your body necessarily as a sexual object, but I certainly know, again, at Child at Risk Health Unit, we receive phone calls from carers and educators sometimes to say, this is what happened in my in my um, session today and I'm really worried about what that means for the child. So we do a lot of education and direct lots of carers to these resources to help them understand <coughs> that this is part of normal sexual behaviour in children, developmentally appropriate. For those who are working in that out-of-school hour um, uh, age range, so the sort of 5 to 10 or 12 year olds, um, what we would be expecting to see is green light behaviour is an increasing sense of privacy around their body. So they're not going to be getting nude, right? The younger kiddos might be, um, might be spontaneously on a hot day wanting to take off some clothes and have a run around. That's not what you're going to be seeing with the older age group. You will be likely seeing curiosity about the child's um, other children's bodies. Um, you might see behaviours like, I'll show you yours if you show me... Hang on. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Um, or playing families. And so acting out, um, part of family um, family play and family <coughs> dynamics. These are all sitting in that sense of... Um, um, Green light um, uh, sexual behaviour, and I guess what I want to throw in there too is the use of uh, toilet words, naughty words, words like poo bum, wee, piss, even um, that sometimes again might be distressing or concerning for educators. It might not sit comfortably with the values that a particular school you might be providing out of hours school care for. Um, but this is something that I would still expect to see in this age group so orange light behaviors these are behaviors that can cause us concern because it it doesn't sit within our normal expected developmental um, uh, spectrum what we're seeing are behaviors where there is some sense of their There's a persistency. The kids, in spite of the fact that you've said a few times now, that kind of behaviour is not okay here, this behaviour continues to happen and maybe it has moved beyond what feels like understandable curiosity into persistently following another child into the toilet, persistently wanting to engage in... um, uh, saying naughty words, swear words, and getting into um, uh, flirtatious, for the slightly older age group, flirtatious behaviour that feels inappropriate for that age group. Um, for our, for our littlelies, the type of behaviour we see is engagement in masturbation that is more persistent. So a young child whose nappy is being changed, may on occasions masturbate or touch their genitals or just generally be enjoying them themselves. What I'm describing here in the yellow light are kids who are repeatedly and regularly um, seeking to masturbate, including taking off nappies, running away from nappy changes um, to remove their own nappies and masturbate. So you can see there's that increasing concern that doesn't quite make sense. An educator may be starting to engage in distraction techniques, but they're not necessarily wor- working. And there's a sense of rising concern. This doesn't feel quite right, and I'm feeling like, as an educator, I need to be more involved. The red light behaviours that I want to outline here, again, I just want to acknowledge... Um, sometimes people say, why don't you just kind of skip along? We've kind of got the picture by now. You've painted a lovely picture quite clearly. Um, I just want to be really clear. There are times when red light behaviours occur in Canberra, in our childcare centres and out of school hour centres. And it's uncomfortable and really concerning. Um, And what I'm going to speak to in just a moment is, what do you do when that happens? But I just want to be really clear. Some examples that we've had... Over like the last six months at Karu, include um, a, a child who was compulsively masturbating, a young child, a two-year-old, to the point of um, injury to herself. So there was um, that was something we were really concerned about. The educators were really concerned about, and we really struggled. Lots of our um, first thoughts around distractions didn't seem didn't make a jot of difference. Um, Also, acting out um, repeatedly... uh, coming in every morning and finding the dolls, removing their clothes and um, simulating sexual acts. So this is um, a, an action that indicates this child has seen something, then they're acting it out to try and make sense of it. And in spite of the fact that the educators were doing great jobs, some of the risk management strategies we were thinking of is, do we remove the dolls? How do we manage this? Um, in, no matter what, this child managed to find some dolls and managed to remove the clothes and managed to engage in repeatedly uh, um, demonstrating these behaviours. For our older kids, I want to acknowledge that sometimes we can move into technologically uh, challenging areas like the use of mobile phones and filming their genitals or sharing images. Um, This is is really tricky business. There's some really great information that you can um, access um, uh, through our um, eSafety Commission about uh, how you might manage the use of mobile phones in childcare and out-of-school hour session uh, centres, um, and again, what you might observe for that older age group: uh, children who are persistently targeting younger kids, smaller kids, developmentally less mature kids, um, to engage in sexual play and behaviour, and those other and those kids are expressing distress about this. So hearing that, the very first thing I wanted to attend to is, like, what do you do? If you left here this afternoon, arrived at a centre and observed this behaviour happening, I just want to briefly let you know, what do you do in this moment? And the very first thing, unfortunately, is that terrible advice of try and stay calm. And if you feel like you can't stay stay calm, please grab another grown-up who might be able to either help you or actually go in place instead of you. And the key things you want to do here are be able to externalise the behaviours. So really clearly and calmly um, say that sort of behaviour is not behaviour that's acceptable here. So that's not going along with our centre rules. Um, I'd like you to pull up your pants, please, and I'd like you to come over to the jigsaw puzzle section, please. And, Love, I'd like you to go over to the um, soft soft play over there, and I would like you to come over here um, and play with some Play-Doh for now. So you're going to be, if you can, externalising the behaviour, not using judgmental tones like that's um, uh, dirty, wrong, naughty, um, but saying it's not okay here, this doesn't follow with our school rules. Um, You, as quickly as possible, do want to be able to start having some conversations with the kids to try and understand what's happened here. And lots of open-ended questions. Can you help me understand what was happening in the cubby? I'm a bit confused about when I came in. Can you tell me what happened, maybe just before you went to the cubby? And starting to talk about what... uh, Encouraging the kids to speak about what happened. And you're also wanting to support either educators or yourself to start documenting just a few little notes. This is really important information that at some point might be needed to try and further understand the behaviour and also to go through some risk assessments. Again, this place of there is no blame here, we're wanting to understand and we're wanting to put some um, uh, risk mitigation strategies in as soon as possible. We need to think through this really clearly. And one of the key things to think about, of course, as well as keeping a record of the behaviour, is being able to communicate this to the parents involved. Now, this is a bit complicated, um, and I just want to be able to talk through this a little bit more. You might have, if we use some of the language that um, that Rhonda, for instance, spoke about, some um, controls that would have, would be in place are actually having some structured um, uh, protective behaviours programs or a, a, a child protection curriculum, something that you're calling on in that you're training your staff in relation to this. You have appropriate policies and procedures in place and also you have communication back to the parents and carers about what are the expectations that they can have of your service. So, it means that when you are walking into a complicated situation, like children in a cubby and everyone's nude and they're six years old, um, you and your educators have a framework to be able to, to call back on and make sense of. It means that when you do reach out to a parent, they receive a phone call from you that you're able to say... As you know, we've got these particular rules in place, that everyone needs to be wearing clothes when they're at after school hour um, um, centre, Uh, and unfortunately today that wasn't the case. We're having some conversations with the children to understand what happened, I'm letting you know that this is what's happened, and that from a parent or carer point of view, that they have some understanding that this would be something that you would do. I know sometimes the feedback we get from parents and carers is like, hey, you guys should deal with it. And other times we get uh, feedback from parents and carers that say, I wanted you to ring me the moment you walked across this and I want to be involved in sorting it out. But I think what is really important is that there needs to be some expectations from the get-go from parents and carers about what your actions might be what your staff actions might be if they come across behaviour that's orange light or red light. So, for instance, I've popped in the slides, you'll see um, a, um, a, a potential action plan for you to consider and also this idea of what a parent or uh, a carer might be able to expect from your service. Um, so just thinking that um, your service will respond in a developmentally appropriate way that children will be able to be made safe as possible as quickly as possible, Um, that your staff will have confidence to be able to direct the children into safety, all the children in the centre, Um, and reinforce the messages that hopefully you might have given through the um, My my Body, um, My Rules or um, My Safe Touching or My Child Protection Framework so that... um, There is a sense as children get older, they're able to be responsible as well in keeping their own bodies safe and being able to seek help from grown-ups when they need it. (coughs) And also that there's a framework so your staff know how to have conversations with parents because I know this is a really emotive topic and sometimes parents respond in a really emotive way. So I also want to acknowledge that sometimes this is your role, that you might need to have in there um, some... Uh, access to services like an EAP I'm not sure if that's appropriate in your setting but similar to an EAP so that your staff are able to get support if required if something's really triggering happening for them and also yourself as you support not just your staff but also the families and the children and the community that your centre works in. In the slides, you'll see there are some contact numbers. That includes um, the child protection numbers, Lifeline and 1800RESPECT, who are really excellent in being able to link you up with appropriate supports in the community. There's also the contact for the Child at Risk Health Unit. Anyone can ring. So you could direct a parent or carer um, to ring uh, and have a consult with someone at the unit. It would be a health professional, social worker or psychologist, um, and we'd be really happy to have a conversation with a parent or carer with an educator or with yourselves if something's come up. Um, And while we're often directing you back to your senior support structures, um, I think one of the key things to say is we're happy just to receive that phone call to offer some emotional support because sometimes you just need to say, oh, my goodness, blah just happened, I did blah, was that okay?" And 99% of the time we're saying, spot on, you did just the right thing because you were able to follow your internal processes and and structures And you've been able to support the children. And that's actually ultimately what we're wanting you to do. I hope that's helpful today, and I'm going to stop speaking so we can start doing the uh, panel discussion. Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you so much. That was really enlightening. And um, I just might invite you and other panel members just to take a seat at the front, if that's alright, and what we'll do, um, it, there should be some notes, have, some post-it notes on the table, if you've got um, any questions for the panel, things you'd like to ask, just please put it on the uh, post-it note, and pass it to Joe, Leah, I think there's Tanya and me at the back, so just wave your hand, and we um, we do have a couple of um, questions that we Already had from, from the conversations we had in the separate course and the things that come up regularly. I might just um, I might just ask um, um, Cass if I could just to expand on the sort of therapeutic services that might be available for uh, particularly for parents where their children are eliciting the red light sort of behaviours you talked about.
5: Sure thing. So in the ACT. Um, uh, We're able to provide therapeutic services for children up to the age of 10, that's uh, at the Child at Risk Health Unit, um, where they're engaging in behaviours from orange light through to red light. It's a very family-orientated therapeutic intervention and it's practised in collaboration with Child and Youth Protection um, because, I guess, what we know is that uh, when we do have concerning... um, Orange or red light behaviours, we're often seeing children who have a range of complex needs. While, while I was speaking about sexual behaviour, um, this might be relevant to think about in terms of um, all sorts of uh, normal child behaviour like stealing, pushing over, finding it really hard to share, bopping people on the head sometimes when you get frustrated. So it's about being able to recognise that there are times when children's behaviour occurs in the context of a family, and so family intervention's what's really appropriate. Um, often, we get tonnes of referrals for children to be seen, but often, I, I would reckon, like, 60% of our work is with the grown-ups in the family. Whatever, whoever they are, it's the, the, the work happens with the grown-ups. We do um, as much work as we possibly can with kids, But what makes a difference is the grown-ups around knowing how to keep kids safe, knowing how to respond um, when kids are engaging in worrying behaviour on any spectrum, right? Um, But also being able to feel like they can, so I'm going to use circle of security language, the grown-ups can be bigger, stronger, wiser kind and can keep kids safe in a range of different ways. That's what makes all the difference. Um, In New South Wales, there is a service called um, New Street and that's for children engaging in harmful sexual behaviour over the age of 10, uh, up to 18 or even up to 25 by negotiation and they've got a new service, Brighter Beginnings, New Start, I can't think of it right now, it's brand new and it's for the under 10s. And so that's in Queendian but they're also able to travel all around New South Wales. So there are services available, and the other important thing to say about Caru is you can just ring and have a consult. Like you don't have to know all the stuff. We're really happy to have a chat. Thank
0: you. Chat. Um, I, I just want to put to the panel. Um, perhaps This is my wrong. One, the first person to answer, but engaging staff in in risk assessment and risk management. Um, one of the things that um, I guess is is challenging for for our sector is that the governance arrangements are quite diverse. We have very diverse governance arrangements from single from standalone service right through to you know, national national providers. What is the best approach of um, engaging staff? Thanks John.
1: Look, um, I think communication is the key piece. So it may be that not everybody in your service can be involved in the risk assessment process, but it is absolutely essential that everybody in the service is engaged in the outcome of a risk assessment. So, so whether that's through um, staff meetings or sending out um, information, translating requirements into procedures, that people understand that the procedure is a control for a risk. There are a number of ways that you can communicate, and that will be different for each of your centres. But it's really uh, just a, a thought process of how am I going to translate the the risk and the controls into everybody understanding. And we need to make sure, as I said before, that. that Communication is up and down because the people who are seeing the eventuation of the risk every day are the educators. So they should be. You need to provide a way for them to uh, to bring those risks up again. It could be in a team meeting. It doesn't have to be in a, a formal risk assessment setting. <coughs> but just think about how your information about risk travels up and down. And the clarity that you want people to have to understand that if I give you a procedure, if I give you a training, I'm doing that because there's a risk over here that I want you
3: to manage.
0: Thank you. And I think there was a common piece between what you said in your presentation and and, and Sandra's presentation around um, around anaphylaxis, and that is the you know the review of the incident, the understanding of the causality is the beginning of the learning. Um, piece um, and I don't know uh, Marianne, Sandra, what, what's your experience of actually um, the sector engaging in that I and mean, is that something you see as a usual practice or is it something that requires some more um, education around or you know, is there a cultural change that needs to happen there? Uh, no, yeah. Yeah. So I guess
2: um, there is I mean, there's some legislative requirements that are probably just not going quite far enough. And then there's, you know, the, you know, the services being compliant with those requirements as well. And I guess that's what we're seeing from some of the research that we've done is that um, when it comes to anaphylaxis, you know, maybe up to 20% are not being compliant with some of the, the current rates. So that's quite high, um, and and that's self-reported, um, and you know we probably have to factor in a little bit there that maybe the person who completed the survey didn't know everything that was going on in their service, but even that is an issue. Um, if, if that's the person who's considered the best person to respond to a survey, who doesn't know what's happening around an management, then there's a communication issue at the very least. Um, so, and I think, like everything, there's, there's um, variability. Um, there are um, services that, um, you know, and it might be because they have lots of kids um, with, with food allergy in particular, perhaps, that, you know, they think, right, oh, we've got all of this to deal with, or right, we've got to be really, you know, um, engaging in the process and, and to maybe offer the and, and I think the other thing is it's the interaction with the parents as well, because you've got parents on a whole spectrum. You've got the parents who are in your face all the time, almost you know, over the top, and then you've got the parents who don't give you anything, despite being repeatedly asked for action plans and you know, adrenaline injectors and all of that, and you know, it's just an uphill
6: battle all the time. So yeah. So Allergy um, and Anaphylaxis Australia has a national 1300 line, and we, have, we get a lot of calls from from parents, but also from um, children's education and care services as well. Um, what we find when things go wrong, it's often uh, it's often the parent that will contact us, and a parent that wants us to do something to make a change. But we uh, step, we kind of uh, sending the ball back into the, the parents' court, and we encourage the parent. We've learnt to do this. We encourage the parent to liaise with the centre, and to encourage the centre to then contact us. Mm-hmm. So that you know, there was a time twenty five years ago when I'd get on the phone and I'd you know I'd say, can I speak to the director, please. Um, and I quickly learned that that was not the right approach, even though I wasn't going in with a blame sort of scenario. Um, You know, many of you will remember the the death of Alex Baptist in childcare in Victoria uh, back in 2005. Um, That, you know, that whole scenario was... Um, was mismanaged because um, you know really it wasn't about blaming anyone, it was about understanding what went wrong so we could learn from it and and effect change to help prevent other families and importantly other childcare staff from going through what that childcare went through Um, and I think That's an important point that we need to make through. I mean, I've got a a huge beef about CEQA requiring one staff member to be trained in childcare. Staff members need support from other staff members. How can you support each other if only one of you have been trained and you've got a life-threatening emergency and all the weight is on that one person that's been trained? So, you know, it's important to look at, as hard as it is, but we need to remember, as a parent, my son's now 32, um, as a parent of a child with allergy, I made mistakes too, and I'm his mother. So, it's okay, we're all going to make mistakes, it's about not having that Swiss cheese thing happening, where you don't have any safeguards in place, and you end up in OK, but having an anaphylaxis and having uh, having to administer an adrenaline injector is a good news story. If you save that kid's life and let's learn from it, what went wrong in our centre that helped us get... that, you know, contributed to us getting to that, that point. And what are we doing now? And if you need to ex- uh, engage an external body about something of like us, you know, like, we don't want you to ban all these foods,
2: because we've got to eat. My and Alex back was in a nut-free childcare. Kitchen. That's
6: why his mother sent him there. But she had often seen, she had seen walnuts on a cake in the, in the childcare kitchen. And the mother, you know, had a, um, a panic attack about it. And she was told, it's okay, it's just for the teachers. But what reassurance did you give her that the knife that you were going to cut that cake with wasn't the same knife that you cut the children's fruit with? So it's about all the procedures you have in place. Um, and sure, peanuts and tree nuts are not a staple food. So you could easily discourage them to be brought. But never presume that they're banned or that they're not there. Because if I come in as the peanut or tree nut police, I will find them. If you have a food that may contain traces of, then you're not clean-up free. You're not egg-free if you've got a, a kid with egg allergy. And you should not remove food that may contain traces of. You need to have that in your centre because if you don't, your pantry will look like mine or Sandra's. Very poor. Because so many foods have got those statements on them. So... It's about um, allowing <coughs> the children that don't have allergies to have those foods, and not ever serving that food with the statement to the child with the allergy. Um, but it, it's learning about what what uh, strategies are reasonable strategies, and what strategies are over the top. If you create over the top strategies, no one's going to implement them, and that's when we're done.
0: So um, your presentation today, very clear pathway as to this is the best practice that we have now based on all the research, and it's um, if you do that, then your probability of managing anything that will come up is is much higher. One of the challenges that um, it's a sensitive issue. I mean, both ACT regulatory authority and other regulatory authorities. We've had challenges over the years with the standard of vocational training and I wonder if, is there a view that you're battling around, well, if somebody's trained then that's problem solved. Is that enough? I
2: think, well, I, I think that the, the problem is that the current requirement is, is not even what we would consider to be a minimum um, requirement um, and, you know... Um, with um, allergies and anaphylaxis, it's, it's like I said the risk when something is different um, then that's when the catastrophic events tend to happen so you know if you're and this is why um, we actually recommend that all staff, educators as well um, do the all of our allergens food allergen management training because quite often it's an educator that you step in is to, to serve the food. Yeah, or even to prepare the food if the Cooker yeah. Chef brings in um, well. So, you know, there's... Um, so everyone has to understand it. Um, and and like Marie said, then that's support for everybody. It's not just on the shoulders of one person. And, um, you know, and, and it, we... We grapple with it as well, like if, you know, and that's why we had such a broad consultation process because we realised there is so much that you're dealing with. You know, it's not just about managing allergies. You've got so many other things to deal with. Um, um, but, but it is a life or death potential. And so if you just can't go, all right, well, you know, I don't believe you can say, well, the legislation says only one staff member on duty at any particular time needs to have to be trained, so that's what we're going to do. Particularly when very good evidence based uh, training is available for free. And I understand you know staff still have to be paid for their time, but you know, we've kept it as short as possible we've
6: made it as engaging and interactive as possible and, um, you know, and, yeah, just on that, you know, childcare centres, I understand time is money, but to make it a pre-requisite of someone being employed in your centre, that, you know, as part of the, uh, we will interview people that have done the ASCIA Anaphylaxis Online Training and the ASCIA Food Service Training for childcare. That's part of, you know, I mean, when I was doing nursing, I had to go start my nursing course having done a first aid certificate. So, you know, that way it then doesn't encroach on the um, the, the finances of the actual childcare facility. If we can think ahead, there are there are lots of things we can do to um, to help bring down that cost, and we're trying to. Create all these resources to try and make it easier, and we understand that you know you became childcare educators because you didn't bloody want to be nurses, but you've got kids with special needs in your care, um, and you know back in the day I was asked why my son didn't go to a special school for food allergy. It was rare back then. It's not rare now. If you don't have a child in your centre, that is rare. Uh, and most people have got. More than one child, so it's um, you know it's it's really about thinking outside the square. Uh, accredited training is not always credible training, and that's one thing that i want to say without saying anything about first aid providers. But I would strongly, we would strongly encourage that people did the free online training, and then if you need to talk to someone, if you've got a question please write it through or call our one three hundred line and we've got health professionals to help
2: step with you. Uh, I'll just add one more thing, sorry. The work gets around. If you manage as well, parents will talk and it will generate more business. You might not want that business But, <laughs> but it will generate it for you because uh, parents do talk and and you know and they're often looking for do you know of any services that that understand it? Um, and particularly um, parents with kids with milk mm-hmm. You know, it, it is that it would be harder to manage milk allergy, even childcare service, with managing the formulas and things as well. So um, but it can work in your favour if you put good practices in place because the parents become
0: one of the themes, I think, in, in most of the presentations today is how do we engage um, with families around issues where um, values and perceptions are difficult and I might just and also actually other entities, and I might just turn to Dr talk, talk Little about that because it's incredibly enjoyable talking to you about outdoor play and um, actually the, you know, how equipment is actually a facilitator of children's development, um, I wonder um, if you could touch on some of the um, challenges, um, particularly in your field, and 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 how you might help us engage with others who have no idea about what we're talking about. And it's really interesting when you come into this sector, and, and as I had, and no idea, and having some idea, <coughs> and engaging with people who have actually a lot of a really good idea about um, how children's development works. So I was just wonder if you could touch on that and some of the.
4: I certainly we've um, fortunately, I suppose, seen a a huge increase in the research around outdoor play and particularly the importance of risk-taking in outdoor play over the last, um, say, 10, 15 years or so now, um, to to provide that evidence base of the importance of it. and one of the issues that comes through time and time and again with this and I suppose you know in terms of the comment you just made Sean, about um, working with, working with parents working with families and um, coming to a shared understanding and shared values around around this um, and you know potentially you know, understanding the, the benefits that are to be gained in terms of children's learning and development um, by engaging in challenging risky, um, um, adventurous, whatever sort of term you want to put on this type of play. Um, And one of the... When I talked about the benefit-risk assessment, having that policy framework is a key part of this. So if within your service philosophy, if within your policies you are talking about this, it's up there front and central for parents when they first enrol in the service, that you've talked about it, you go, okay, these are the types of experiences that we provide for children, this is why we provide them, drawing on the research evidence and the EYLF and NQS is there to back you up as well in terms of that, Um, so we're saying this is really, really important, we believe this is really, really important. This is how we're going to manage it. So we recognise that, yes, there are some risks. This is how we're going to manage it. So it's all up there and, and, and central in terms of um, opening up those conversations, opening up the opportunities for parents to say why, why they may or may not be comfortable with it, and therefore talking through and addressing their concerns one of the other things that um, when you look at um, some of the Canadian research in particular, um, and it actually started, one of my colleagues started with a, a project that they were um, doing with schools in Sydney, that they came up with this these tools for risk reframing. And that's all about sort of unpacking that stuff around what we mean by risk, what we mean by hazard, where the concerns lie, how we manage and balance the play against the the risks and all of that sort of stuff. And doing that, having, through that research, what they found, having the educators and the parents in the same room to go through that process is a really valuable process so that you are all on the same page. And I mean, what I've heard through my research and what I know that others have found through their research, that when you talk to the educators, they go... Uh, we don't do this because the parents don't like it but then you talk to the parents and they go don't have a problem they never actually asked us you know so so there is this sense that they're not on the same page so being on the same page um, so there is a tool and I didn't put it in my presentation but I can potentially provide it to to Sean or whatever um, that, that um a group in um, Apple play in Canada that have developed this risk reframing tool it's an online tool um, there's one for educators there's one for parents where you can work through this um, that can be a very useful process in terms of um, you know articulating the, the value um, but also you know working through those those issues Thank you
0: well, Could we have any more any other oh, well, I think. Um, are we after is it after talk? I can't do the talk. <laughs> yeah. well we might um, I might invite take thank the panel today and to encourage you to come to the workshop tomorrow um, it's going to be fantastic um, we've got some insight into what is going to take us through so I mm. really encourage you and it's real world um, risk assessment and risk management so thank you so much to everybody coming today and, and, and thank you